Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Namaste, Yoga Revealers. This is Alec Vishal Rubin here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Today, we have an exciting episode to share with you. Find out how Gaia yoga teacher David Magone found yoga through a can of Coca Cola, a packet of coffee creamer, and a Buddhist monk. Quite the intriguing intro to finding yoga and be set out on a path towards mindfulness and self-exploration. So when it comes to teaching yoga practices, I think though we might all choose different languaging to fit um, people's propensities and what they'll understand, I think to whatever degree we can help people understand the potential they have within themselves you know if we can use tools to help them look within then they can start to see those types of things within themselves and that gives them the faith to carry on sit back and prepare to open your mind through tibetan meditation practices and the offerings of prana vayu yoga with david magone on today's episode of the yoga revealed podcast Namaste and welcome to Yoga Revealed Podcast. This is Alec and it is such a joy to be here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. And I'm sitting in the headquarters of Gaia, previously known as Gaiam, and I sit across from David Magone, who teaches in Boston and has a fascinating story of how yoga found him. He has uh, discovered so many styles of yoga through his years and has led him to teach a Buddhist-inspired style of vinyasa called pranavayu. David, thank you so much for taking time out of your visit here to Boulder to share with the us on the podcast, who you are and what yoga is in your heart. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's really a pleasure to be here. Awesome, man. So for those who do not know who you are or do not know what Pranavayu is, can you illuminate for us, you know, what the style is and really a synopsis of how yoga was revealed to you? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> my name is David Magone. I grew up in South Central Montana 
And uh, later on down the road, I lived in Oregon for some time, and I wound up, um, uh, you know, studying some uh, Hatha yoga practices out there and some Ashtanga yoga. Uh, my Hatha yoga teacher um, was an Iyengar teacher named Holiday Johnson, and my Ashtanga teacher was a great guy named Bill Counter. So I studied with them for a good long while, and then eventually wound up moving to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, so that my uh, now wife could go to graduate school. So anyway, um, while uh, studying and teaching in Portland, I started to design Pranavayu Yoga um, while teaching local university courses on yoga at Portland State University. Um, at the time, students came up to me all the time after class to ask questions on alignment and meditation and other things like that. So at some given point, I started to devise systems to basically make it easier to teach that information in the college setting. So as part of that, I uh, developed an alignment system based on structural engineering principles. Um, I developed uh, sequencing technologies based on uh, some of the research of Tudor Bampa, who is the godfather of a, a movement science called periodization. And then uh, finally, I integrated my great love of meditation into the practices. One of my first introductions to yoga was actually uh, through meditation, and I in fact began practicing yoga in the hopes of becoming a better meditator. So to uh, basically put together those systems for uh, myself and my students, I uh, drew heavily from Tibetan Buddhist practices um, that I've learned from my teacher, uh, the Harvard University Buddhist chaplain, Lama Megmar Chetan. So uh, these days we use all those different systems, the alignment-based system, the sequencing systems, the meditative systems, uh, to basically help people transform the body and change the mind. Um, I think the essence of yoga practice is really learning how to not only work with your physical body, but ultimately learning how to uh, calm destructive emotional states mm -hmm. and to really touch into the best parts of who we are as human beings. So the mental training techniques that we integrate into Pranavayu class are really all designed to help do that. Mm. That sounds fascinating. I definitely hope to be in one of your classes one day. That would be amazing. I really like that. Awesome, brother. And uh, a synopsis of how yoga found you. I was reading something on your site. If you could share that story, that would yeah. be beautiful. It was, you know, it was kind of an accident. It, uh, I, when I was in high school, I wound up being invited to um, perform music in China with my high school band. I think there were 70 or 80 of us total. And um, we packed up our bags, we flew over, and it was so foreign to me. You know, I'd grown up in the West and outside of a really small town. And I had had no introduction to any Eastern philosophy at all. Uh, I had never seen a monk from another tradition or anything like that. So when I got there, I was really, you know, just so interested in the landscape and the lifestyle and all the people there. And while on the trip, I basically wound up taking a flight, I think from Beijing to Shanghai or vice versa. And on that flight, I wound up being seated next to a young Tibetan monk. Uh, I don't know how old he was, but, uh, you know, my memory and my recollection, I feel like he was probably 17, 18 years old. He was really pretty young. But it was, it was so funny because we couldn't talk. You know, he spoke Tibetan. I didn't speak a word of it. But I was never left so interested in him. And so I just kept an eye on what he was doing. You know, he seemed so happy and so, like, joyful. And I just thought he was fascinating. And the thing that I remember, and I don't think I'll ever forget, is that the stewardess brought us around some soft drinks. I think he got Coca-Cola or something like that. <laughs> and she dropped off some creamers uh, thinking that we might have some coffee. Well, this guy really had no idea that creamer doesn't go into soda, so he ripped off the top, he dumped it in the soda, and it was like a Coca-Cola volcano, man. He <laughs> like sprayed everywhere. And you know what was so profound is his reaction. I mean, really, all the people that I had ever spent time around would have either been embarrassed by that 
or they might have gotten angry, you know, but he, he laughed so hard he cried. Like he, he was, he, he just, it didn't concern him at all. And, you know, he was so full of joy even when that silly thing happened. So I just remember thinking, man, I want to be like that guy. And I had no idea how he got to be that way, but I assumed that it must have something to do with meditation. So when I got back home to Montana, I, you know, I went to a bookstore, I picked up some books on meditation and I just started practicing on my own right away. Wow, I think that that sense of lightheartedness that this monk carried has definitely been transmitted to you as I Thank just you, sit across from you and I see your genuine smile and, and the, the the heart is there. Thank so you. That's Thank a you, really cool introduction to He was a cool guy and meditation. Super cool guy. That's neat. So in the ways of how you've integrated so much deep knowledge over the course of the years, which we'll continue to navigate and dissect. How do you transmit pretty intense or maybe challenging philosophies for the normal Western mind to relate to? Where for you, being on that airplane, having no introduction, you were just immediately interested and you took upon yourself self-study. And I think that that is maybe a little rare, you know, to just go into the books on your own whim. How do you transmit to your students who may be in that Western psychological mind the teachings of Tibetan practice or yoga in its own? You know, the Dalai Lama uses a metaphor that I've always really resonated with. Um, His Holiness says that, you know, if, if you look at any given type of tea, in a space, it has water. And, you know, depending on people's tastes, people might flavor that water with different ingredients. So some people like herbal teas, other people like black teas with more caffeine, and there's, of course, so many variants of that. But the basis of tea is, of course, water, you know, irregardless of what you put in it. Now, just the same, you know, we have many different faiths, we have many different philosophies. Uh, Some of those philosophies are based in religions. Uh, I think um, other philosophies are, are based in capitalism or socialism and communism. We have all sorts of different philosophies. And really those philosophies are very much like different types of tea. You know, we we flavor the water of life with so many different ingredients. But at the heart of that entire experience, at the heart of any human being, I think is the potential for wisdom, Mm. love, and compassion. Those are really like the water and the tea. And those are commonalities that every human being shares. So when it comes to teaching yoga practices, I think though we might all choose different languaging to fit um, people's propensities and what they'll understand, I think to whatever degree we can help people understand the potential they have within themselves, you know, if we can use tools to help them look within, then they can start to see those types of things within themselves and that gives them the faith to carry on. So my method is very simple. You know, I uh, use yoga practice, I think, as the Trojan horse. You know, I notice that most of my students really want to do some some really beautiful asana. So we do some fun asana practices. And then at the end, I just try to give just a basic introduction to things that will help people see the wisdom within themselves or the love and the compassion. Mm -hmm. And then more importantly, I try to introduce them to practices that I've learned from my teacher to help them cultivate those things on the inside. Mm. Wow, that's profound. That's awesome. Thank you. Of course. So what have been the most profound findings for you that have revealed themselves to you through a consistent meditation practice? I think I have to admit that I haven't accomplished too terribly much with my meditation practices. I mean, to be honest with you, sometimes when I sit down, I have so much mental chatter. 
Um, I also notice when I look inside of myself, you know, I have destructive emotional states. Um, you know, sometimes I can feel really selfish. Other times I don't feel kind or connected to other people. You know, if somebody makes me mad, you know, I experience lots of anger like anybody else. But having said that, I think the most profound thing that I've seen in my practices is the fact that I can improve. You know, it's mm. been really cool. You know, I still deal with all those things, but over the years of practice, I've seen my anger lessen a lot. I, I've, I've noticed myself becoming more patient. And I've noticed, I think the most inspiring thing for me is that those seeds of love that I do have inside are seeds that can grow. And it's so inspiring and amazing because I think some people are naturally compassionate and some people are really able to express love so easily. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me who sometimes has to work at those different types of things, it's so wonderful to think that, you know, I don't have to just take the life that was given to me and accept the way I am. You know, I, I don't have to label myself as an angry person or a selfish person or any of these other different types of things. Instead, you know, I can use my meditation practices to call my destructive elements You know, I've seen time and time again that I can use those same practices to cultivate the positive parts of myself. And that's so wonderful because, you know, I've really seen that if I continue practicing, you know, I've already improved a little bit. So I'm hoping that if I continue to practice over my entire life, then eventually I'll become kinder and more compassionate. And and I think it's a real possibility. Mm. So in the moments where challenge arises in a uh, mind chatter way where it's maybe self-talk or judgment of yourself, judgment of others, or, you know, self-destructing thoughts that may have been a little more uh, swallowing years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, how is it and what tool do you have to, like, notice that before you begin to act it out? Like, wh- what is it about that mi- the mindfulness practice that helps you pause? I think that mindfulness to your point is the key you know typically those we all experience those different types of emotions and when they come up they're so powerful that oftentimes we're overwhelmed and overtaken by those emotions before we even know that they're there now in my mind that's why daily meditation practices are so important because you can really step back and within that space you can see those emotions arising abiding ultimately passing by and you can I think create a sort of mindful separation between yourself and the emotion itself now what makes it so interesting is that as you practice that over and over again I think it becomes second nature so that as the emotion arises within the context of daily life you're less likely to be overwhelmed and more likely to just be aware that it's there Mm -hmm. now that awareness is incredibly important because becoming aware of an emotion without either being terrorized by the emotion or without trying to push the emotion away, actually takes some of the power out of the emotion itself. And at that point, I think it's possible to look deeply into the nature of the emotion to see the wisdom within anger, or the wisdom within desire, or oddly enough, even the wisdom within ignorance. So the meditation practice, I think, is a very profound way to learn how to mindfully observe those emotional states so that you can do the deeper work of looking inside of yourself to see the true nature of not only those emotions, but the true nature of your mind as well. Let's see if you can speak to this. I, for me personally, it was three years into my practice and then four years into my practice when meditation became a part of my daily repertoire. For majority of people, perhaps it is a, a, a physical practice at a first notice, right? And at what point in time do you feel is the opportunity for us to, you know, notice when it is time for us to step into our room, sit down, sit up, and be with ourselves 
in that space of resistance because I think resistance comes up a lot in meditation practice and in, in, in just the few years of experience that I have in, in my dedication, I find it easier to sit in groups of people mm. with presence, with fellow humans who are dealing with something along our conditioning. How can you speak to and what can you offer to our listeners, to those who wish to obtain and integrate a daily meditation practice and not just sitting when it's offered or not just sitting when it's the right thing to do that day, but every day? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the first thing to do is to accept that maybe not everybody needs meditation. You know, I think that it's important to realize that we're all in different places in this mm -hmm. life. And so I think it's important to look inside. And, you know, if, if you look inside when everything stops, when the asana practice is done, when you don't have parties to go to, when you don't have responsibilities and things that are going to take your mind off of everything, mm -hmm. when everything stops, you know, if you feel okay inside, if you don't have anxiety, if you don't have fear, if you don't have stress and all these other things, then maybe you don't need meditation. You know, maybe mm -hmm. you're fine just as you are. Now, having said that, I've noticed in my life that sometimes I feel as though I'm happiness when I'm, happiest when I'm doing a lot of things. I'm happiest when I'm flowing. I'm happiest when I've got a lot of different fun classes going on and things like that. But then sometimes when all those things stop, you know, I notice sort of a hidden anxiety coming up. I, I notice, you know, some of my hidden fears come up. And what I've realized is that I've used those activities to sort of mask those things, to mask those things. So I think that if you see those types of things arising within yourself, at some given point, it's important to at least dip your toes into those waters. You know, I think meditation mm. can very much help with all those different things. Now, to your point, at first, it's really helpful to have support because it's hard to sit with yourself. It's hard and it's challenging and it's so easy to run away. So having some friends to practice with is, is such a wonderful gift because, you know, we depend on others. We're social creatures, and by practicing with others, you know, they also help us to motivate ourselves along the way. So at some given point, I think the first step is to look at yourself. The second step is to perhaps find a community. And then at some given point, it's important to just practice over and over again, whether you want to practice or not, mm. until it becomes second nature. Now, I was thinking of this a little while back, you know, one of my friends took up a new exercise routine and uh, he hadn't been doing, you know, physical exercise for a long time, but he really dedicated and he practiced five days per week. And then at some point, you know, I think it started to become second nature. So he and I were walking somewhere and I asked him if he was going to go to the gym and he said, no, I'm going to go home this day. And, you know, I talked to him later on down the road and it turned out that as he was walking past the gym, his feet automatically turned in and he wound up going to work out. So some part of it, some part of doing that again and again, had conditioned him even to the point where he thought he wasn't going to do it. He just wound up doing it anyway. So looking inside, seeing what you need and practicing if necessary is important. Finding a community to support that is great. And then to practice over and over again is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Because then after a while, those practices become part of who you are. Right. Can you speak to sitting with yourself? A wild ride. It's <laughs> a wild ride. <laughs> it's a wild ride. I think um, in what respect? Mm, in what respect? Sitting with, you know, I think life is beautiful. I think life is so beautiful. And uh, there are innate challenges that come with life and uh, with ourselves and with other people. And I think that yoga is a beautiful practice to take solace in when, when life becomes a little bit uh, curveball-y. Mm -hmm. And uh, the meditation practice 
I think is uh, just a very beautiful practice to take refuge in. And even when those emotions are so challenging. So in light of challenge, how do we sit with ourselves in quiet? I like what you have to say about refuge. You know, in, in, in Buddhist teachings, that's one of the first things we learn how to do. You know, we, we, we learn how to take refuge. And when we take refuge, we take uh, refuge from the pain in life. You know, one of the, the Buddha's first teaching on the, on the Four Noble Truths was the truth of suffering. And, you know, he, he wasn't negating the fact that there's so much joy. I mean, to your point, life is so beautiful. I mean, we have these amazing human connections. We have all the beautiful sights that we see and the sounds that we hear. And there are so many, so many, so many sources of joy in the present moment. But if we're honest with ourselves, there, there's also pain. You know, there, there's pain. You know, when experiences come to an end, it hurts. When our bodies don't function the way that we want them to do, it, it's, it's not fun. And even if we have wonderful upbringing, we've had such a lucky life, we have many different mental imprints that create pain and suffering. You know, we have the, we have the seeds of uh, uh, compassion, but we also have great passions that lead us around in a million different ways. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Um, we have, uh, of course, great love, but we also have anger. You know, we have all these different uh, contradictory emotions inside the mind. And I think sometimes when we sit with the contradictions, it can be very uncomfortable. Mm. So really, the most wonderful sense of refuge, I think, is a sense of refuge that's not based in the external world. You know, the external world is always changing. Things always fluctuate. And as a result of that, any refuge we take in another person or a place or even an external practice will inherently become unstable because things are impermanent. So really when we take refuge, I think we learn how to take refuge in our inner potentialities. Somewhere beneath the chatter, somewhere beneath all the mental dialogues and the stories that we tell ourselves rests a lot of space. And in that space, if you can learn how to take refuge, you know, that's the, the ultimate safe space. Um, you know, I don't remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs exa exactly, but I think it starts out with, with, you know, a good shelter, you know, a place to take ref refuge from the storm. Mm. Now, to, to take a step back, you know, my teacher, Lama Mi'kmaq, oftentimes used the uses the metaphor of space. He says that all the planetary systems in the phenomenal universe have arisen out of space. And, you know, all those planetary systems will dissolve into space over and over again. So if we're to look for a constant in the external universe, you know, it has to be space. All these other things are shifting and changing all the time. There's no solidity there. Now, the same is true with our minds. You know, we have the inner space within ourselves. And our thoughts and our emotions arise out of that space only to become that space over and over again. So to some degree, if we can learn how to look inside of ourselves and merge with that inner space, then I think we go to that place, that place beyond pain. Now, the Buddha taught that when that inner space merges with the outer space, we achieve nirvana. nirvana. So really, I think those practices can be the best possible refuge because they help you take refuge in things inside of yourself. And as a result of that, I think they're, I think they're a, a better protection. A better protection. Hmm. Beautiful. In light of, switching gears just a little bit, in light of what you further teach to your students, what is it that you're hoping to transmit through the times and the moments of your classes where you're teaching meditation? I'm hoping to transmit a warm heart and a calm mind. Mm. A warm heart and a calm mind. Mm. I, was, I was sitting the other day and a question dawned upon me and it was just like, what is the mind? <laughs> oh God! It's a big question. Isn't it? <laughs> it's a big question. 
How would you answer what is the mind and where would it go? Where does the mind go in meditation, in that like absorption? Where where is everything? Yeah, that's a complicated question. <laughs> that's a complicated question. I think the uh, Zen answer to that is the mind comes from nowhere and the mind goes nowhere. You know, the, the, the mind is, the mind is, the mm. mind is. Mm. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Can you offer some Q-tips or like techniques in light of uh, meditation that our listeners could integrate or, yeah, truly, that our listeners listeners can integrate into their lives as they attempt to sit or they further their sitting practice on and off the mat. Uh, I think that meditation techniques, the few that have come my way, have been just pivotal towards helping me establish myself in the seat without having to, okay, minute, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sitting for, you know, a little while longer. I think the most important thing to do at first is to not worry about practicing for long periods of time. Mm. Sometimes in the beginnings, that can actually make meditation practices much harder because it can become so frustrating. You know, when somebody sees a, a beautiful statue of the Buddha, or if they see a beautiful statue of some of the Hindu deities, they look so peaceful and serene. But anybody who sits for even a little bit of time finds out pretty quickly that meditation is painful. And I'm not talking about psychological pain. I'm talking about the fact that it just hurts to sit on the floor sometimes. Yeah. Or, you know, your back aches. And sometimes if you're doing like shamatha meditation where you're gazing at a candle or a spot, your eyes water. And it's painful, man. And the same thing occurs with all these emotions. You know, they come up. We have these inner contradictions and these inner things, uh, pain that's arisen from the past mm -hmm. and many different things. And it can be overwhelming. So... If at some point you just force yourself to sit through that pain, the pain can be so overwhelming that it pushes you away from the practice. So because of that, I think it's important to just start with little tiny steps. You know, just take a minute to sit out. In, in that time, close your eyes and just try to count 10 exhales. Mm. You know, if your mind wanders off to anything else at all, notice and come back and start the process again. You know, after a little while, that 10 will become easier, so make it 11 and then 12. And then subsequently, as time moves on, your practices will start to grow until you're able to sit for longer periods of time. Mm. Now, because anything difficult becomes easier with practice, I think that as long as someone's regular and they come back to it for small increments and gradually increase those increments, then after a little while, the pain starts to subside. And I think some of the peace that you see in the Buddha and Lord Shiva and, and, and all the other, uh, all the other uh, you know, uh, representatives of their traditions and, and faith-based practices, I think that will start to reveal themselves in the practitioner. Hmm. Nice. Do, do you have experience with Vipassana meditations or is that a different lineage? And where you practice so vipassana is um you know it depends on how you define it um you know the vipassana practice is one of the strong practices from the buddha's four foundations of mindfulness um there's a separate tradition that teaches vipassana techniques um uh, i think they're uh, the guru is uh, Gwenka. so uh it's a different lineage and, and i don't practice that um, having said that, in the Vajrayana practices um, from the Tibetan world, we have uh, we have insight practices, but they're um, they're a little bit different, a little bit different than your typical uh, vipassana practices. And can you pronounce that word vaj Vajrayana. Vajrayana? Vajrayana. Can you say a few words about that lineage for those who have never heard of that? Yeah. 
So the Vajrayana is the mystic tradition of the Buddhist world. It's, uh, it's uh, technically it's translated as the lightning bolt path. So it's supposed to be the, the, the lightning path to, uh, to enlightenment. Now, what's very interesting to me is I think oftentimes people associate Hatha Yoga with the, uh, the Hindu traditions. And it's true, there are many Mahasiddhas from which uh, many great Hatha Yoga traditions sprung. But there were some Buddhist uh, 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 Mahasiddhas as well in India. Mm-hmm. There was uh, the uh, Mahasiddha from my tradition named Birupa. Uh, the um, Garakshanath, another famous Hatha yogi, practiced Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teachings as, as well as Hindu teachings. And eventually Garakshanath and uh, Birupa became enlightened masters themselves. And Birupa in particular taught students who took those same Buddhist Hatha yoga techniques to Tibet. And for many years, the Tibetan monks and nuns practiced those original Hatha yoga techniques uh, that, that were really infused with the Buddhist essence. So the Vajrayana is, is really Buddhist Hatha Yoga, Buddhist Hatha Yoga. It's, uh, it's, it's based in um, practices that integrate mantra, mudra, as well as visualization for the purposes of helping practitioners see and experience their inner Buddha nature, their inner Buddha nature. Hmm. So of course, I think probably the, well, the most well-known Vajrayana practitioner of our time is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's, he's a great yogi, great yogi. Have you sat with him? I have. Yes. It's beautiful. That's amazing. So this is, I'm not sure again if this is the same tradition, but, and I may pronounce it incorrectly, Tonglin? Tonglin. Tonglin. Can you say a few words on this practice and, and for those who don't know what this is and why this practice may be of benefit for us to consider? Tonglin is amazing practice. I think it's, you know, I think it's one of the practices that's transformed me more profoundly than anything I've ever learned in yoga. And it's, uh, it's, it's a particular practice drawn from the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. So there are three wheels of Buddhism. There's the Hinayana, um, uh, and some of their chief practices are shamatha meditations um, and the, uh, the philosophy of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. Shamatha meditation is a meditation that calms the mind. The Mahayana practitioners are motivated by the altruistic wish to achieve enlightenment for the sake of other sentient beings. And so for those practitioners, they have lots of meditative practices to help them uh, develop a warm and open heart toward other people. Now, their practices are also informed by the Buddhist Four Noble Truths. Uh, They study separate texts as well, like the Seven-Pointed Method of Mind Training and uh, Heart Sutra and other texts like that. But one of the chief uh, meditations they practice is Tonglen. Tonglen means giving and taking. And I think the reason it's, uh, in my mind, so profound for our times is that our culture tends to be self-centered. And so if you look at it, it, it it's, it's, it's so funny, you know, we have iPhones, we have me time, we have so many different things and there's so many things oriented around the eye. It's a little strange because we're, we're more connected than any other given time in our life through social media, but we all feel, you know, lack of connection. You know, we, we, we're so focused on drawing in more information and seeing what's going on and, and all these different things that we just lose our human connections. Mm. So at some given point, it's altogether possible that we can come to think that we're the center of the universe. And we, we can start to think that everybody else doesn't matter quite so much. Um, not out of a sense of ill will, but just because we, you know, we don't put a lot of thought into it. So Tonglen is wonderful because it reorients things in a way that basically helps you to see the needs of other beings is important and substantial. And it helps you to lessen any sense of self-grasping within yourself. 
So in Tang Wen practice, you quite literally put yourself in someone else's shoes by sending them all of your positive energy, all of your love and all of your kindness with your exhales. As that energy touches the person, you imagine them receiving healing, you imagine their obstacles being cleared, and you imagine them receiving benefit from your own personal energy. And then as you inhale, and this is the, the, the most profound thing, you imagine taking that person's suffering into yourself. You breathe in a thick cloud of smoke into the center of your heart, and you just imagine all that pain dissolving into emptiness. And then again, you send your love and your kindness with your exhales, and you breathe in pain with your inhales. Now, through the process on your exhales, you learn how to consciously cultivate love. You know, love in the Buddhist tradition is defined as the wish that another could be happy. Mm. And on your inhales, you cultivate compassion. Uh, compassion is the wish that others could overcome suffering. So as you do this again and again and again, as you send and you, and, and you uh, take, you give and you take over and over again, I think that it helps to reduce the ego. And in that space, as the ego reduces, then I think you come to see the infinite potential for love and compassion that we all possess. So it's a profound and amazing practice. Yeah, I, uh, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit with Tongling for the first time. And, you know, I think there's a first for everything, for everyone. You know, as long as we have an open mind as we step forth into new experiences. And I'd love for you to comment because I'm still navigating the experience where I hope some of our listeners have the opportunity to experience Tonglin if they've never uh, practice and sat with this meditation before I found that sending energy I, that was relatable I've experienced that authentically to send love out and to to breathe in someone else's suffering not only could I acknowledge like wow like this person's suffering is just as important as my suffering in my challenge, my hardship. But I found it like as I was breathing it in it was like getting stuck and I couldn't get to just like be like oh let it dissolve right away and then exhale love and inhale suffering it was so much sludgier and stickier and harder for me to push out love and to continue to take in suffering because it was it's different for the psyche to think about that it sure is is there a way and a practice to you know i guess it comes down to compassion for ourselves as well right Yeah, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that all positive and negative and even neutral associations are created in the mind. Mm -hmm. So one of the best examples of this is if you think about a person that you don't like too terribly much, you know, somebody who's just hurt you in some way or they, they've created some negativities in your life, you know, at some given point, it's really easy to think that that person is an inherently negative person. You know, to, to, to think that there's something bad about that person, especially if they really hurt, hurt you and that they're just not a nice person. And so sometimes it's very surprising if you see that person out there in the real world surrounded by friends and family. You know, if you'll see this, this person that you see is so negative, you'll see that they have a, a loving spouse sometimes or a loving partner. Um, they might have a little dog or a cat who loves them so much. And, and you know, it can be quite shopping, shocking if you've, really, if you've really come to mentally label that person as a negative person. So what that represents is that two different people can see the same thing in completely different ways. And the way we see things is oftentimes, uh, you know, influenced by our predispositions. You know, sometimes someone can remind us of someone from the past and say nothing at all, but if we've had dislike toward that previous person, we can project that dislike out onto that particular person. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that people cause us pain or that they're bad for us or things like that, but the flaw arises when we think that a person or a situation or an energy is inherently negative. Mm -hmm. Really, the truth is much deeper than that. Phenomenon are empty. They're empty of specific designations. You know, the labels that we project are only mental labels. So really, in Tong Wen meditation, I think that if we can remember, uh, you know, that the ultimate nature of those negativities is just pure energy. When we draw those energies into the heart, you know, we draw in the pain, we draw in the suffering, as they touch the center of the heart, we just imagine them dissolving into space. Mm. We imagine them dissolving into emptiness. And I think that helps us to go beyond the labels that we attach to pain, the labels that we attach towards suffering. And in that, I think that we can gain deeper insight into the interdependencies and the true nature of not only that energy, but the way we interact with that energy in the real world. Mm. What do you think it is that causes maybe from the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and such, but perhaps as you see in your own heart, what do you think are the big uh, examples and reasons as to why we are suffering? And what about for those who say, I'm not suffering? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the nature of suffering is interesting. I mean, we, we definitely go through phases where we don't suffer. You know, youth is amazing. <laughs> like, everything works good. <laughs> you know, you know, like, sometimes you haven't had enough relationships to really, you know, have, have some bumps along the road. And I remember times in my life where, you know, there was, uh, you know, things are really happy and there, there's no pain. And even right now, you know, there's, um, you know, I'm in a very happy place in my life and I've got so much goodness going on. But, um, you know, things change, you know, things change. And, and because of that, even if we're not suffering now, I think suffering does come up at some point or the other. Um, you know, suffering can come from so many different things. But, you know, suffering is oftentimes related to karma. Suffering mm. is related to karma. And I think that... In our culture, karma is really misunderstood. You know, people think that that just means that if you did something negative in the past, uh, or if you're experiencing something negative now, it's because you did something negative in the past. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, a sense of, um, sometimes in Western culture, of blaming the victim through using karma as sort of an excuse. But karma really goes much deeper than that. You know, karma is mental imprints. Karma is a mental imprint. So everything that we experience leaves some type of mental impression in the mind. Those impressions are oftentimes compared to seeds. Just as an apple seed only has the potential to grow into an apple tree, a seed of anger only has the potential to be transformed into a new seed of anger if that particular seed is stimulated. So it's important because as those individual seeds ripen, if we have a seed of anger within our mind and we've reacted in angry ways when we're tested in the past, that seed becomes stronger and stronger and stronger until at some point it begins to overtake the mind. Now, once that happens, we become anger. You know, we are our minds. We are our body. And in those moments when those seeds become strong, the anger takes over our entire worldview. And as a consequence, we can be in the most beautiful place in the world, surrounded by amazing people, and we'll feel as though our environment is attacking us. We'll, we'll, we'll feel as though, you know, the people around us, even if they say really nice things to us, are actually, you know, like poking at us and, and trying to harm us through our words, through their words. So the root of suffering is karma. You know, it, it's those mental impressions that cause us to frame experiences in, in certain ways. And so we find that if we can calm those seeds, if we can calm our angers, if we can calm our clinging to uh, the need for things to always be perfect mm -hmm. or the need for uncomfortable things to go away, then as those seeds become calmer and calmer and calmer, the mind becomes less reactive 
as a consequence, the entire universe transforms. Things on the outside seem easier to deal with because we've transformed on the inside. Because we've transformed on the inside. So really, I think the key to going beyond uh, beyond suffering is to calm those seeds on the inside, to calm the mind, to really find the inner space on the inside. And once we find that place, I think it's altogether possible to literally exist in a hell and still experience peace. Wow. Exist in hell and still experience peace. It's just the state of mind. Hmm. A few more questions, David. What do you think we as a wor- the world, our community collective, have perhaps forgotten or what could, what could we work on as a collective? You know, I don't know if I know the best answer to that because I think there are so many things, but I think, I think that we've forgotten our human connections. Mm. And these days especially, you know, I've noted there's so much in the world that's, that's, that's wrong. You know, there, there's so much beauty, but there's a lot of pain right now. You know, there are wars being fought and, and different people killing one another for their ideologies. And at some given point, it's so easy to lose track of the grander picture and to think that those people over there are bad people and we over here are the good people. And so I think, you know, one of the most profound things that we can do in any given day is to just run into lots of people of all different types and varieties. And at any given point, I think if we connect to those people, then we can come to connect to their human nature, their human nature. There's no doubt about it. People are doing horrible things, but oftentimes those horrible things are motivated by great pain and suffering. Um, It's not to say that they won't, those people shouldn't be accountable for the atrocities that they commit and other such things. But at the point where we start to label those people as inherently evil, I think we lose out because we lose our own human connection. You know, we lose the, the ability to maintain an open heart even within the context of a sometimes horrible world. So I think the best thing to do is to communicate with people from other cultures. You know, if you have a bias uh, toward people in the Muslim world, hang out with Muslims. You know, soon you'll see that they are human beings just like us and they express their love and their compassion in different ways. Or if you're uncomfortable with a Buddhist or if you're uncomfortable with atheists or people of all colors and backgrounds, spend some time with them. And, you know, I have great faith and confidence that if you spend enough time, you'll see that in every culture and every situation in every population, there are some wonderful individuals, some wonderful things happening. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's an easy way to, to, to see that sometimes the labels that we project on the world are really quite limiting in nature. And it's only through human connections that we can come to see that very clearly. Hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, you've been so blessed to be able to travel the world and, and share what you've found and share what you practice throughout the world. And what cultures have you uh, been touched by as you've taught and practiced? I've been so touched by the UAE, the, 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 uh, the Emirates, uh, Dubai in particular, in the Middle East. Um, what was so touching for me about that, you know, I've taught there a few times and done some extended teacher training programs. And, you know, some of the women in the programs had suffered so much. Uh, you know, we had some Syrian students who fled Syria, uh, you know, they, and their parents were still there and they're so afraid for their parents. Um, you know, many of them came from violent backgrounds, uh, Lebanon, you know, so, some of the people there were, were in Beirut when Beirut was being bombed so often. And to see how people responded to those tragedies was so inspiring. You know, we, many of them came from a different faith and a different background. And I was, of course, teaching from a Buddhist-inspired approach. But um, just seeing them 
you know, so willing to look inside of themselves despite the fact that they had suffered so much was amazing and inspiring. And I think what was even more inspiring to see it was to see that despite the fact that we had different faiths, that we could connect on common human nature. You know, we, we, we all wanted to calm the seeds of suffering within ourselves. We all wanted to, to plant good where there, was, where there were bad things before. And so really as a, as a, as a uh, you know, outcoming of that, we had some amazing conversations and amazing connections. And uh, my heart continues to be so inspired by the work those people are doing. Uh, one of my students, Natalia, is uh, doing regular uh, training for uh, for kids in the UAE. You know, she's mm. teaching them, uh, you know, mental quieting techniques and yoga. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think that, you know, those, those, those people are the next generation. And it's so cool to think that those kids might spread from Dubai out into these other places. And hopefully... <clears throat> okay. Sorry, sorry. You're okay. Got to drink water. The you life need the source. water. It's the life source. Thank you. <laughs> It's just really inspiring to me to know that those kids are going to have tools for the next generation and that hopefully it will benefit not only them but the people that they interact with as well. Mm, that's a blessing. It's a blessing. Absolutely. Absolute blessing. So last question, David. What would you offer a final golden nugget for our listeners as they continue on on their yoga journey and their path as they continue to dive in to life? Or golden nugget. I think that I don't know. One of the things that's helped me out a lot is to practice with no expectation of return. Mm. No expectation of return. I think that sometimes if we do meditation or we do yoga, there are so many expectations. And you know, it's important at some point to ask. You know, you know, is it possible for me to be happy even if those expectations aren't met? We place so many conditions on our happiness. We always say, I'm going to be happy when this happens. I'm going to be happy when that happens. But what happens if those things don't occur? So because of that, I think that if you can practice putting goodness out into the world without expecting anything is, is a consequence, then it's odd. But I think so many more blessings come through the practice. So I think practice with no expectation whatsoever. Just practice putting as much good out into the universe as you can. Practice making yourself a better person and then see what comes. Mm. See what comes. Nice. Thank you. And where can our listeners find you? They want to practice with you. So I teach uh, many classes on uh, on Gaia, uh, Gaia TV, and the My Yoga uh, uh, application on their website. I've got a number of videos on on Buddhist inspired yoga practices. Um, separately, I teach in Boston regularly, uh, downtown Boston at Exhale Spa, and then I travel around the na- uh, nation and teach around the world. So um, listeners could go to pranavayu.com and see more information about my teaching schedule there. Sweet. David, thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you, brother. Alec, you too, man. You've got such amazing energy, and it was a real privilege and pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you for revealing what you love and what you have clearly dedicated your life to. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste, indeed. Thank you for tagging in with us today. The Yoga Revealed podcast is honored to be a resource of self-study to you. Thank you for investing time and energy in this practice we all love so dearly. If you would like to practice with David Magone, visit his website at pranavayu.com. If you're ever in Boston, be sure to visit the studio he teaches at called Exhale Spa. Thank you again for tuning in to the Yoga Revealed podcast. This is Alec Vishal Rubin, and I am here to extend a genuine thank you for listening to these interviews. We hope they are as valuable to you as they are for us. 
please visit yogarevealed.com and sign up for our newsletter if you want to hear about the amazing offerings we have in store for you. We look forward to meeting you and seeing you this summer. My friends, peace and love and many blessings. Namaste. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.